Welcome to Don't Trust the Mirror, My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder, with psychoanalyst Maureen Kritzer-Lang, the queen of self-esteem. Maureen shares her personal journey of her struggles with an eating disorder and how that changed her life. Listen as Maureen shares her pain, her stories, and her triumphs. Today, as a psychoanalyst, her mission is to help as many women as possible overcome their challenges. Now, my secret life with an eating disorder. Hi, this is Maureen Kritzer-Lang, the queen of self-esteem. Welcome to my podcast, My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder. I have a very special guest all the way from across the pond, outside of London, Scarlett O'Connor. Welcome, Scarlett. I'm very excited that you could join me today. Hello, it is lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Scarlett is a qualified therapist who works with eating disorders and um, and is here to talk about her journey with her eating disorder. Um, really a, a long, treacherous journey and her recovery. And uh, Scarlett, I will let you just begin to talk about your story and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, it is. Wow. I mean, my, my experience, I'm 10 years, almost 10 years now into, into recovery. Um, but it started at a very, very young age for me. I was around nine years old when I developed a sick relationship with food, if you like. And I had an undiagnosed health issue, dyslexia and ADHD all going on at the same time in my little body. And I learned that food was an effective way for me at the time to numb and to stuff down my feelings, unfortunately. So yeah, at a very young age, I started to use food in that way. Um, which of course had a negative effect on my body size, which affected my interaction with my peers, um, my education, but ultimately my, my self-esteem and my self-identity. So from that young age, unfortunately, I didn't have a very good outlook on myself and who I was. And I didn't actually feel like a little girl, which is really horrible when I think back. Um, so I'm going to... Can I just interrupt you for a second? You were nine. You were so young. Nine. Yeah. And it, it developed very quickly into binge eating. And I would eat and eat and eat until I was sort of, sort of naturally sick. I, I didn't even induce it or anything. Yeah. I was such a, a very, very young age. Yeah. Um, and that developed into, into binge eating. Um, and from that, I think when I went into my teenage years, I, I sort of decided as teenagers changed and I, I didn't want to. I was trying to searching for an identity. I wanted to change. So I uh, went on the diet and lost uh, uh, I hit ten, a, lot of, a lot of weight, uh, a lot of weight. And, and unfortunately, unwillingly, people were congratulating me for effectively becoming anorexic, which is kind of unfortunate. But, you know, the comments were, oh, my goodness, look at how beautiful you are underneath all of that. I won't say the F word because I can't stand it, but... Look how amazing you look now. You're you're, you're carrying out these behaviours. Look how well you've done. You know the, the congratulatory story was so big for me, and um, and obviously the changes in my body made how me feel better. How did you feel getting all those comments? Do you remember what I, I was it like? My fan, I felt like I found an answer. I mean, I still didn't feel like I had an identity. I I was obviously anorexic, so I was very very numb. Uh, and very, very mean to the world around me. It was even more effective at, at numbing my feelings and emotions. 
And what happened was, unfortunately, I think it was around 19, physiologically, as every human being is programmed, once we starve, we, we go into the feast of barren response. And unfortunately, um, I got too hungry, as I would have termed at the time, and I overate one day. And that's when my journey with bulimia began because I subsequently purged and I then entered into the addictive cycle of bulimia. So that started 19, yeah. Well, that's so, that, that is very common. I mean, my story is somewhat similar in that I started restricting at a very young age. Well, not, not as young as nine, but certainly a young teenager, but it's not sustainable. Or it's difficult to sustain restricting and starving yourself for so long, and it swung it to a whole cycle with bulimia as well. So it's it's nobody realizes that that or it's I guess it's hard to realize the danger, and it's hard to stop dieting. Most definitely, and I think I think at this point personality traits come into play. I mean, some people carry on with with the anorexia, and some people don't. They develop binge eating or. You know, bulimia or the binge purge aspect kind of kick in. I think there's kind of a, a behavioural background there as to which way you go with it. And for me, you know, I, I was effectively starving and that's what tipped me into the, the addictive cycles of bulimia. Yeah. And that's a realisation. It's an addiction, isn't it? Once you're... Well, it's physiologically like your body gets really used to... Uh, to, to reacting in that way. And there's a certainly a, a release of endorphins and dopamine. Once you go from the endorphins rush of starvation and then and then you light up your dopamine centers by by binging and then everything's rewarded by purging and you've reset and you're back to the beginning again, you know, which is why I'm very it's an addiction and a mental health condition kind of roll into one, which is why it's probably got the highest mentality and the most difficult rate of trends you're dealing with a triple threat really aren't you it's a really unpleasant unfortunate place to be it's definitely can you share just a bit of what was going on in your life that contributed to your eating disorder and your need to to use your eating disorder to cope I mean, I didn't have the best childhood you know my feelings weren't, weren't recognized I was in a lot of pain physically and mentally, when went back when it first started, being dyslexia and having ADHD is very confusing when you're young. And obviously, I'm, I'm 48 soon, so it was a completely different time. Um, and I have quite a serious underlying health thing going on. So I needed to find a way. I didn't have the structural support, familial support around me. So I needed to find myself a way that I could cope. And for me, unfortunately, that was by using food. I found it to be very soothing. I mean, the neural pathways that are involved when you're eating food kind of take over from, from that constant ADHD chatter. And once I developed the all-known, I'm sure anybody listening, and, and you included the all-known eating disorder, disordered voice, which seems to come along with with disordered eating, um, that kind of took over and became my identity. And in a way, for me, and it's different for everybody, obviously, um, that kind of eased things up a little bit for me. It gave me something to cling to and something solid, and which obviously wasn't. But you know, at the time, that's that's kind of the yeah, area. I think that's why why it happens that way for me. And then when the bulimia kicked in, because of the brain chemistry involved and the physiological responses, 
it became an addiction and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as the time went on, unfortunately. It is. It, it's such a difficult cycle to break. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I will ask patients, what would they be thinking about if they weren't thinking about food or calories or their weight or exercise? And it really becomes such a way of coping with difficult emotions that are very hard to connect to. Most definitely. And I think what I found with myself, which is which was one of the key parts of recovery, and what I find with a lot of clients now, is the ability to separate self from an eating disorder is absolutely impossible. When you when you're in the midst and the grips of these this mental health condition and addiction, your entire identity is that eating disorder. You become your eating disorder. So you can't differentiate you know that's that's who you are at the time and it's very difficult to separate and be able to find other ways of coping because essentially you just feel like that's who you are and that's all you got in the moment right. yeah. and it becomes just a survival most definitely a way, a way of life a way of coping and it's it's like even just coping with the negative and in, in the grips of it it's coping with pretty much everything you know even happiness and just life isn't it you, you it definitely takes over, and you 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 really um, become very imprisoned by your eating disorder. Yeah, the shame the shame causes huge. I'm sure you'll agree that the, the shame, especially with binge purge and bulimia type illnesses, the, the the shame factor is so very isolating because it's not a pleasant thing, is it? It's not something that people want to talk about or admit or particularly with bulimia um I, I don't eat it's not the same as i i eat binge and purge it's very very isolating shame wise i think i find that a lot in practice too yes there's so much shame and and i can i think back to the hours that i spent in the bathroom and this messy side of me that you know it was purging and just you know sort of being this person that i really didn't even recognize and then getting all dressed up and making sure I looked perfect to walk out the door. So there, there were these two sides that were very, very disconnected. And that is exactly when, I mean, there's a story, obviously, and then up to then up to my recovery, but the way that you said that is the perfect synergy because it was that that I had to work out in order to start the journey to recovery. Actually, Scarlett, there is the eating disorder side of you, but there is actually you. And you are separate entities. You are not being purge anorexia, which is what I'd obviously become and was living. You have binge purge anorexia. And as much as I was separating, like you exactly like you just described, that realization to me was one of the key key milestones and moments in my recovery. And, and it sounds so simplistic, but even now with my clients, it's this sort of recognition that actually, you know, I do live my life like this, and like this voice is my constant every day and this is how I am but it's separating yourself from the eating disorder which becomes extremely difficult whether it's six months or, or, or 40 years you know it's a very very hard thing to do it is it's it's very hard and it's very hard to listen to the sort of normal eating voice versus the eating disorder voice and be able to have that conversation and not let the eating dis- disorder voice take over so often and and that and that eating disorder voice that's so critical that really wrecks havoc with our self-esteem 
And I also, because my website is called Don't Trust the Mirror, I feel like when we look in the mirror so often, we are so critical. And it really is a reflection just of how we're feeling and projecting our feelings onto the mirror. And it just so often. I mean, I didn't even have a, I didn't even have that other side in, in the midst of my insider. I just was, I didn't sort of, that voice was, that was all I could hear. I, I couldn't find that other part of me. I, I, it had been going on for such a long time that my identity was just so entrenched in that disordered way of living um, that I couldn't even find that other part of me. I couldn't hear it. There was, there was nothing there until I reached that critical point of having to recover. And, um, you know, that part that part wasn't even there for me. It was just that constant, constant voice. And the mirrors to me was a it was a net down checking tool. <laughs> so yeah. so how, how did you how did you get through your recovery and how did you work through things and what are some things that helped you get through it? I mean, I had to re- reach a crisis point with with my health mentally and physically. I had to get to a place where I was admitted um into hospital. Um, because I was at a critical point mentally and physically. Um, and I had four of my seven children at that point. And um, I had been able to ease up somewhat in pregnancy. I mean, the nature of eating sort of the same for everybody. For me, it was about more about self-harm. So within the pregnancies, I had, had been able to ease up a little bit. But at the points where recovery was inevitable with me, it was when I reached a critical crisis point. Um, and I knew that I physically and mentally couldn't carry on anymore. So I would have been sectioned, um, which in this country means they would have taken my rights away and, and, and effectively kept me in hospital. So I would have been away from my children. I would have lost my rights as a mother. Um, and I was so, so unwell. Um, you know, it was critical and it? It, it kind of got to that point for me where I had to make a decision. And I'm always searching for the word. I can't, it's, it, it wasn't a positive decision. I think like epiphany or something is too positive for what it was, but it was a breaking down point where I had to make a decision to choose life or death, quite literally. And and I chose, obviously I chose, I chased it there alive. I, I didn't want to lose my children, etc. Um, And that's when my recovery run. And the first, first part for me, as we've already mentioned, was that, that, that realisation that underneath this constant mind chatter, uh, and I remember looking in the mirror and thinking, "You, I don't know who I am. I don't, I don't recognise you. I only know you as Vanimio, whatever you want to term it as. That's all I know you as. Um, and because I'd got to a physical place that I couldn't carry on, I had to reassess and I had to look at myself in a different way. And that's when I realised that there were other parts of me. Well, and it's really discovering the other parts of you that is, is is part of the journey. Did you have a lot of support from family and friends? I mean, what was this like for your family? You had young children. Most definitely not. I mean, I did, I did try. I, got, I think after about 10 years, I, I started to try to access help. Nothing worked for me, unfortunately. Um, I tried a lot of traditional methods. No family support at all. Um, and unfortunately, and as I find with a lot of clients with severe eating disorders, I'd created an enabling structure around my daily life. And I had um, unwillingly turned my husband into an enabler, which which we've had to deal with together as, as I've gone through recovery. Because 
at the time, obviously, I'm not, I have no shame now, you know, I was in the grips of a disorder and a mental health condition. And, you know, I would use him to enable me, if you like, to, to, to help support those structures that I had to destructure. Um, and because he loved me and he didn't know what to do, he would just in unwillingly support me, if that makes sense. I would make him get me the food. I would ask him to take the children out if it was daytime. And um, yeah, so that was, and that was part of recovery as well, was, was realising that I'd created an enabling structure around this disorder. And when I um, address that with clients, it's often quite a lot of denial, a lot of shame again, and a lot of confusion as to, you know, actually there must be a structure here to, to behind the behaviours to keep it going every day, if that, if that makes sense. You know, I had to, you know, that and think of that and, and stop that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good description of, of what can happen because I think changing our habits, our routines, the enabling behavior is very hard because it becomes very safe. And it's very scary to address it because it means also taking more responsibility for our behavior. And I, um, it's, it's, it's very hard because everybody gets caught up in it. And, and I think our families don't know what to do and they don't know how to help. And, um, and it becomes a huge issue, not only for, for, for patients with eating disorders, but also their families. Did you have family treatment? No, no, I didn't. No, I mean, I, I very quickly realized myself, like I said, once I started to separate from this, this disordered part of me, um, that there was this voice and this, this, this manifestation of the eating disorder. And I remember saying to my husband, you must, you just stop listening to me. Just, just leave me. Just don't, well, not leave me literally, but just leave me alone. You know, don't, don't listen to that, that part of me that says you have to do this as our own truth or all this or all that, or, you know, these are excuses. This is me giving into my eating disorder and, 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 and he was like, okay, you know, because it was hard for him to understand. But when I work with clients, I find that for many responses, I'll say very individual and so different. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of guilt that comes from families. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of enabling, which which takes place through love. You know, people don't understand. They don't know what to do. Uh, and they end up holding up structures of somebody else's eating disorder through love, which is Bruno's fault of their own. You know, it's just... Well, I think that, you know, pe people who love us and care for us and... and as well as our patients, feel very helpless. Very helpless, very, very confused. And they just want to stop the suffering. And if somebody who is in the grips of an eating disorder is saying, well, you can help me by, you know, getting me this food or leading me on my own or giving me this time, inadvertently that person will do that because they love the sufferer and, and that becomes an enabling structure. And addressing that within recovery and um, it's one of the most difficult, difficult parts I find with clients is a lot of resistance, a lot of denial and a lot of shame. I mean, I've obviously not got that shame anymore and I can look back and say, yeah, you know, I was emotionally back many miles finished. Um, and he loved me and he didn't know what else to do. So he would just go ahead and, and do what I needed him to do in, the in, that, in that moment. And then once I was into recovery, and he did step back. It made it a lot more difficult for me to continue and a lot easier for me to carry on separating myself from the disorder and start to learn what was actually going on underneath, you know? So really trying to change the structure. 
Very much so. Yeah, that's how, how my recovery came about and that's how I work now. I'm, ve- I'm very much in the now. Um, I didn't find that when I was very, very ill that constantly going back and talking about traumas or going back to the past or constantly recording things or, or, or being made to, I call it shaming. You know, what have you eaten? How have you done this? What did you do? None of that helped me at all it made me worse so within my practice now that's not not something that i find is necessary you know we obviously we validate the reasons why an eating disorder is there but keeping on focusing on it is is not productive going forward and the word destructory does sound rather brutal but it's destructuring of behaviors isn't it it's like a day-to-day and food is fluid you know it, it the reasons that the disorder started are not going to be the same two months down the line, let alone two years, ten years, etc., etc. So, with me in my recovery and with me in my practice now, it was very much very is about looking at how we could disrupt the way that this disorder is manifesting in the body and the mind right now, and, and see what's going on underneath. And and what I went through in recovery when I started to feel those feelings underneath was phenomenal it wasn't always unpleasant it wasn't easy and i'm sure i'm sure you heard it very challenging okay you you really did go through some fears because you've been numbing for so long and you've been turning off so many feelings for such a long time and when you start entering into that discovery of the self it's a really powerful powerful experience and i i tend to focus on with clients do you know what it is hard but it's not always bad I remember the fact of time that I laughed for a decade and I was just like this laughter that and I laughed I'm renowned for laughing randomly, but it just came so so strong because I was so used to numbing my behaviours. So, you know, it it's not always a negative thing, but it's tough. Well growth can be very painful and yet very at the same time. And I, and I always tell patients, too, that it's not a linear process. It's not like a straightforward, like, step one, two, and three, and you're recovered. It's it's a lot of, like, stepping forward, stepping back, reexamining. You know, I think of it as, as like, rupture and repair, rupture and repair, just, like, going back and, and moving forward again. Mm-hmm. I think it's, like, it's, <laughs> it's very hard. Were there some things that, like tools or different coping strategies that you use during your your recovery that you also may use with your patients? Like, I before I could find help, I started journaling, and journaling for me was very important because it was I think of it as my best friend at the time because I had no one to talk to. My journal became my place to go, and I still journal today because I find it just an amazing tool to discover parts of myself. I can write and all of a sudden I'm like, I never realized that or or what about this? And so I always encourage my patients to journal in whatever way they they choose to because you know, what's my way may not work for somebody else. Um, and also I love being outside. So I find nature very calming as well. Um, so I try to talk to my patients about things that work for them that, you know, and also, that uh, that have worked for me that I also find might be helpful for them as well. So I didn't know if you had some resources or coping strategies that you used. 
I mean, definitely, there's a lot to say there, isn't there, in, in a very small amount of time. But just, just building on what you said, you know, like the journaling can look so different for so many people. Like for me personally, connecting my my well self with my body was about movement. Um, it was about music and about movement. And that effectively was because I'm dyslexic, right? So journaling for me is just another like, what? can we just not? I don't want to do it. That's, you know, that's very, very important what you just said. Yeah, I just did it there. <laughs> you know, every it, it, there's so many different things. There's art, there's singing, there's there's loads of ways of connecting with feelings, which 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 essentially is is journaling. And and again, the sensory side of things, you know, sometimes um, like you said, going out into nature, when you when you're because at the start, you you know, for me, even the feeling of food in my brain was a challenge. So I had to look at the mental side of it and the physical side of it and the physical side was a very, very slow, slow process. And I timed myself out. So I would, I would, you know, intake and then I would time and say, let's just see how you feel after five minutes. Let's listen to the in sort of chapter. And at the same time, let's listen to Scarlet and let's kind of weigh it up a little bit before you know the five minutes are done. And then let's just go a little bit further. And so that was how I worked in the physical, um, which is kind of long, but you know, it worked. But the mental thing is so personal. It's about building up, like you say, a personal toolkit of ideas, a personal way that you can, you know, have distraction techniques if you need them or coping. And going out in nature is so sensory. And I find, um, I found for myself, but I do have quite sensory, you know, bark, water, tar, I don't know, is it bark to you guys? Put a bark to your tongue, <laughs> bubbles, or just you know immersing yourself in water or, or something that sensory tactile contact with the body can can sometimes take us away from those other things that we're trying to avoid those negative urges to to carry out the behaviors it's a, it's a two-pronged approach isn't it it's the physical side and and the mental side too so devising a personal toolkit is is vital most definitely and it's different for everybody um I did find some real savior in music and movement and, and finding out about my body uh, and my mind and how who I was. You know, it helped me to find out who I was because I didn't know it, which sounds crazy, but I didn't. Mm. Well, I think so many people can relate to that because you really detach from your body and you really, I, I find you become so critical of your body. So it really is about developing a different relationship with food, with your body. There's so many different aspects to it. And you're right. It's it's not a one size fits all. And everybody has different parts of themselves that they have to find a way to connect with. And um, instead of just identifying as a person who has an eating disorder and that becoming you know, when that becomes your whole identity, it's really being able to branch out and discover these other parts of yourself. Most definitely, and getting to know who you actually are, I and mean, you know what's going on underneath there, and you know it's a very personal thing. Most definitely. Do you have um, just a couple things that you might like to leave my listeners with that might offer them some hope and inspiration? Because your journey is quite an amazing journey, and I I just am so in awe of your bravery and courage to get through this. It sounds like you went through an awful lot to get to where you are today, to work with people who are also struggling with eating disorders. So 
you had a couple just words that you might leave my listeners with to uh to oh, encouragement encouragement wise i just really want one sentence if if someone can go from not even being able to answer the telephone and and having no enamel on their teeth and not even you know, the place that i was in it, it was not not a good place and i never ever thought that i would see the other side and i did and i'm there and it's beautiful and if i can do it then anybody can um you're not broken you're not flawed you're not genetically predispositioned to suffer the way that you are it's a mental health condition it's an addiction and there is always a way out it's achievable 100 percent. and advice wise it's all about separating yourself from your eating disorder and and finding out which part of you that mind chatter trying to get your way around it it's so black and white it's so perfectionist there's no gray and for me i had to find the gray it was like i need to walk a different obviously neuroplasticity is a bit better thing with me so rewiring the brain but in a more simple way finding a different pathway to walk so working out which part of you is the eating disorder and they kind of walking in the other direction which isn't always super easy but every time you go a little bit further, you get to know a little bit more. You get to know what's the eating disorder and what is actually you. And that's when recovery comes about. All the third love stuff and that, that comes at the end. That comes well, at the end. That comes as part of a journey, doesn't it? You get to know yourself. You separate yourself. You start to understand that, you know what? This is not forever. This is not unchangeable. It's something that I have. It's not something that I am. Thank you, Scarlett. I think you, you spoke so eloquently and I think really gave my listeners such hope and encouragement to continue on their recovery and, uh, and to never give up. Never. And y- y- you know what? If I can, the way at the place that I was in, you know, anybody can. And everybody can. Absolutely. And And here you are today also giving back through your work and offering your patients hope from your experiences. So thank you. Thank you. I am so glad that you reached out to me and that we connected. And uh, I feel very grateful that you are a guest on my podcast. And uh, and I look forward to, to continuing a conversation with you as well and staying connected. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder with my special guest, Scarlett O'Connor. Remember, trust yourself. Don't trust the mirror. Thank you for listening to Don't Trust the Mirror, My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder with psychoanalyst Maureen Kritzer-Lang, the queen of self-esteem. We hope you enjoyed it. Please visit DontTrustTheMirror.com where you'll find all our social networking links and can post your stories, comments, and questions. Until next time, remember, trust yourself. Don't trust the mirror.